0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 542nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is bringing awareness to the value of local food systems. We're talking with Paul Lightfoot about how local is the new organic. Paul is Bright Farms' founder and president and leads the company on its mission to provide consumers with the tastiest freshest, and most responsibly grown produce. Through his vision, Bright Farms is creating the first national brand of locally grown produce. In 2017, Bright Farms was named 235th on the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing private companies, ranking 10th among all the food companies, and he was the only produce company featured on the list. Paul is also a member of the board of United Fresh Produce Association. Bright Farms believes local, indoor produce is fresher because it's grown closer to where it's sold. It is cleaner because it can be grown without pesticides, and most importantly, it tastes better. Bright Farms is also the number one brand of locally grown packaged salads, serving the freshest, tastiest, and most responsibly grown produce to consumers nationwide. They operate hydroponic greenhouse farms in the communities they serve, enabling them to eliminate time, distance, and costs from the food supply chain. Welcome to the show today, Paul. Are you ready to rock?
1: I'm ready to rock. Let's do it.
0: Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks and share more about the path you took to where you're at today?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Bright Farms and, and where I am is a, is a bit of a personal story. You know, I'm, I just turned 50 a few weeks ago. I've been doing Bright Farms really during my entire 40s. And it started with what happened during my 30s. You know, it was a, a period where I had been running a company that used software solutions to improve the supply chains of retailers. It was a good job. I was having a, a fine career path. I think, but it lacked personal passion. I didn't, I didn't have any religion for the industry. Also during the thirties, I was becoming passionate about local plant-based eating, just, just personally, and the way I fed myself and my family. And although this was an area of passion, it wasn't an area of job opportunity. So recognizing that those two things were, were parallel, but not meeting, I just decided to create Bright Farms from scratch. I came up with an idea. I decided to, to take a risk on it and, and to combine my skills and my experiences with the things that I was most passionate about. And my time had turned out to be good. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm, I'm glad it turned out well, but there's obviously a lot more plant-based eating than there had been 10 years ago. There's also a lot more local food that's become mainstream than there was and we've, we've we've managed to create a business that's, that's having an impact and getting larger and it's been really rewarding
0: wow really larger by the moment i would bet we're trying i i believe that urban farming growing food in the cities is probably the biggest solution to our global food challenges what are your thoughts on that
1: i don't Try to rank the solutions. I I actually think there's there's a big problem or a big set of problems, and there's going to be a big set of solutions. I would say that you know shifting production of long distance field grown crops into local controlled environment facilities is one of the solutions that we're going to need. I would also say that you know solving food waste will be a a big part of the solution. Mm. Converting you know more traditional production acreage from growing grains for animals to be eaten to growing food for humans to be eaten is a big part of the solution as well. And if we think about the problems as broader than just feeding people, I would also argue that regenerative agriculture and finding ways to sequester carbon in soil and and to to restore soil health is also a big part of the solution. So I'm, I'm proud to be one of many facets of what I imagine is a better future food system. I wouldn't claim to be the, uh, the top of the only one.
0: Nice. Well, and it's going to take all of us to get it done. I don't see, oh, yeah. you know, I don't see it being a one-off solution. Yeah. I guess my whole point was growing it closer to where it's eaten. That's the solution for me anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I'm, i've been staking my career on it. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about local versus organic and why you feel local is better?
1: Yeah, so interesting. I don't i don't see them being on the same continuum or competing with one another. You'll have to look far and wide to find someone more passionate about local food than me, but I'm also a pretty passionate organic eater. Now, if I'm given the choice between a locally responsibly produced salad that's pesticide-free, and I compare that to a long distance field grown organic salad that has organic compliant pesticides on it. I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose the local one, and I think it's the, the better and more responsible choice. But otherwise, I see I see the rise of organic continuing, and I see the rise of local continuing. Sometimes the the, the Venn diagram overlaps. Sometimes it doesn't, and that that's fine. The one way in which the statement is true, though, is that I, I do think if you look at the trends of 20, 25 years ago with organic, we're seeing similar uptake trends with local right now. So it is it is perhaps a historical successor to it. But the story with organic is, is you know, it's far from over. There's, There's an amazing amount of growth still to be had.
0: Could you talk about the journey that produce travels from where it's grown to your plate and the toll that takes on it?
1: Yeah, well, and I I won't, I won't pretend to speak for the whole industry, right? And and when we think about why locals better, it often begins with the obvious starting point of sustainability. But I don't think that that's applicable to all products, right? There was that great case study of I don't know if it was great or not, but there was the the case study of New Zealand lamb that could travel 11,000 miles. So Europe and be more sustainable than its local equivalents. That happens sometimes. You know, I wouldn't recommend that rice and corn be sourced locally. You know, they they store cheaply and well, meaning shipping them is not very resource intensive and it, it isn't worse for the product. But for salad greens, you know, almost all the salads in America before controlled environment local like bright farms came up seem almost all the salads in supermarkets came from either Yuma, Arizona in the winter or, or Salinas, California in the summer and the areas around those two those two regions. And that meant that all of it was traveling thousands of miles to the Midwest and to the East Coast. And the length of the supply chain and the complexity of the the supply chain made the product worse. You know, it made it taste worse. It it hurt its shelf life. The system has made it less safe. So it's it's a long and unpleasant journey for salads. And when we can replace those long and complex supply chains with shorter and simpler ones, we're having a better experience for consumers. Hopefully more kids will love eating their salads
0: because they're fresher.
1: And it's a longer-lasting, more attractive, and safer product as well. So it's a a pretty clear sort of win-win-win.
0: Yeah. Why is it safer?
1: Boy, we could do a whole podcast on this, right? But the the, the long-distance field-grown salad system sort of has three structural risk areas. The first is that they're growing in fields where there's exposure by the plants to pathogens, either birds flying overhead, defecating, or wild animals, or often water now is acting as a vector, bringing contaminants from factory cattle farm operations, and and what that means is that you've got animal fecal matter, you know, mixing with water or mixing with plants in a way that is contaminating these plants. The second risk factor is the way that the the long distance sort of incumbent salad industry has evolved is that you've got commingling. So many farms will send their product into the centralized processing facilities where the contamination of one farm's output will be mingled with and therefore create a bigger footprint by combining it with the output of other farms as well. And then the third structural factor is that you've got that long and complex and frankly opaque and confusing supply chain. You know, it's very, very hard right now for food service and retail organizations to track back a particular batch of salad to a particular farm's batch on a particular date. Now, when you look at, at the way Bright Farms or, or companies like Bright Farms operate, you know, it is a controlled environment. There's hair nets, there's locked doors, there's foot baths, the water is treated and tested. You don't have those exposures to pathogens. There's no commingling going on. It's, you know, one farm is, is shipping under one label to one market. And the the simple supply chain means it's very easy to track it back. You don't need fancy software to track Bright Farms. You can look on the label and see a map of exactly where the product comes from, even for a consumer. So that's, that's why... There's some structural risks that exist in the incumbent industry. Now, there, are, there aren't no risks in the way we operate. All, all food is, is best to be thought of as an area of potential food safety risk. So we're always trying to you know, get to the next level. You know, we're on the IBM Food Trust blockchain platform with Walmart, for example, and we treat food safety as the number one priority of the company. Every Tuesday staff meeting starts with food safety. Our construction is imbued with food safety. Our operations is imbued with food safety. But we've got a a starting point in the race that is way ahead because we don't have those structural risk factors.
0: And it sounds like you've done a lot to address the food safety factors. And I would guess that there would be less of those two have to address in a hydroponic greenhouse.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And I, I saw there was an article in the Boston Globe a few weeks ago that showed that leafy greens now cause more hospitalizations from food safety than beef, which had been for a long time regarded as the largest culprit. And that's a sad thing to learn. And, and with that in mind, you know I you know, came up with the idea of, and I'm the, the current chairman of the Controlled Environment Agricultural Food Safety Coalition, which is bringing together controlled environment leafy greens producers that are truly controlled in the environment and that are willing to be subjected to third-party audits to make sure that all of our member organizations learn from one another, treat food safety as a non-competitive matter, mm-hmm. and help ensure that none of us engage in any practices that would increase our risks, right? So we all want to make make sure that we remain as as safe as possible.
0: Wow. So you are an industry leader in moving this forward. You've been doing it almost 10 years now, right?
1: There are are lots of people that I think are more experienced than me, from whom I have a lot to learn, but I am doing my best to keep moving things forward as much as I can.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm always a learner. So it was less about knowing everything and more about just standing up front and saying this is the way it's going to be because you're also on the board of we mentioned it in our bio on the board of another organization tell us about that
1: yeah i'm a member of the board of the united fresh produce association which is which is a trade association association for the entire produce industry whether local or long distance organic or not it's really all the major players and I think it's, and it's an honor to be on that board. I think it's it's interesting to note because I imagine five years ago they were not interested as much in companies that were doing local produce. It just didn't seem as likely to be a big part of the industry. And I think it shows that the industry, largely driven by interest by consumers and retailers, recognizes that local is here to stay. Local is an important part of our food economy, and local will probably continue to become more important in the future.
0: Nice. And so I want to stand in front of one of your farms and I I think I read online that you have just opened a new one 280,000 square feet. So if I was standing yeah. at the front door of your greenhouse or of your farm, what what am I going to see?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing we'll go back to food safety. The first thing you're going to see is a door that's not open. <laughs> you know, you'll have to have permission to come in, and you'll be in an in a waiting area where you have to don a hairnet, and you have to sign in, and you have to read about our food safety protocols, and then step your your shoe soles into a disinfectant bath before you're you're even allowed to enter the greenhouse. So that's the first thing you'll see is that food safety starts with uh, infrastructure, and and it continues with Culture. After that, you know, you're going to see what would almost look like a series of large fields of salad greens growing. But if you walk closer, and if you take a look, you'll actually see that they are boards with plants growing uh, uh, on the top of the boards floating on like 18 inch deep ponds of water. And those ponds of water are what enable us to grow uh, on a year-round basis in a nutrient solution that is exactly what the plants need to thrive. And then if you look around, you'll see you're in a glass-roofed building, you know, and we're not using all electricity uh, for the energy for our plants. Most of our plant energy comes from the sun transmitting through the glass of our Do so We think that's the most sustainable way to do it. And then if you keep looking, you'll notice that there are all sorts of systems controlling the temperature and the humidity and the light levels and the dissolved oxygen in the water, the nutrients in the water and the carbon dioxide in the air, that's all computer controlled and automated so that as the outside you know, conditions change, the inside environment continues to be perfect for these plants to thrive. And then if you follow the plants through the process that they go through, you'll end up seeing it being packed in, with, with bright, cheerful labels that are also transparent. We're all about transparency so people can see our stuff and understand the way we operate. And then it is off to our retailer partners, usually within 24 hours, and on the shelves just about right away, so that you know, consumers have almost two weeks to enjoy our products compared to usually about half of that for the stuff that's coming from the West Coast.
0: Wow. So what I just heard you say was that you're harvesting this, packaging it on day one, and sometime on day one or day two, it's actually in the grocery store for people to buy.
1: That's right. And that's a huge competitive advantage in a in a short shelf life perishable category.
0: Yeah. Well, it's my understanding that as soon as you pick something, the nutritional value of it can start degrading. So the older it gets, the less nutritionally impactful it is.
1: Yeah, that's not I don't think scientifically well documented, but it's clearly the case, right? You, you almost understand that to be true without even needing to ask an academic. It's absolutely the case.
0: Yes. And so you've been doing this, again, almost 10 years. And yep. I'm, and you're very passionate about it, I can tell about tell that. And, you know, I find myself preaching to my listeners often because I'm so passionate about what I do. And sometimes along the way, something will happen, an epic moment will happen. And it's the time that we pause and say, oh, yes, this is why I'm doing this. You got one of those for me? You know, I
1: would say that, I'm having like little moments like that all the time now. You know, I, I go out into the field, whether I'm visiting our farms or visiting stores or visiting with a customer at a, at a retailer's offices, and and the thing that really sort of knocks me over now is I'll meet someone that I didn't hire that was hired by someone I didn't hire that is out there really fulfilling this mission that I I wrote down in 2011. Yeah. I put a lot of care into it when I did that. And I put a lot of care into hiring people who were authentic and talented and work hard. And now when I go out in the field, I see people doing things better than I would be doing them if I was doing them myself. And I see them fulfilling this vision that I had so long ago. And it's, it's super rewarding. It's, 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 a bit like, it's a bit like seeing a child going off into the world and making something happen when you weren't watching. That makes you very proud. And that's really closely related to the things that you care most about.
0: Wow. And that's just got to make you feel amazing. That's nice. Nice. And how do you consider Bright Farms to be part of our next agricultural revolution?
1: <laughs> oh, boy. I think we're in the midst of a giant food revolution, not even just agriculture, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I could answer your question in several ways, but I think I want to answer it with Bright Farms being a part of this this drive toward more local. We, t- we talked about sustainability earlier, but I think that locals' rise is also about trust. You know, consumers have lost their trust in big food. You know, when I was growing up, the red, you know, label of the Campbell's soup can was yep. something that mothers didn't question when they fed the children. And, and that's not the case anymore. People, people in America want to know where their food comes from. They want to know what's in their food. They don't want pesticides. They don't want ingredients that aren't food. And businesses like Bright Farms have products that feel like the anecdote to that. You know, it's local, fresh, pesticide-free, plant-based products. With a map on the label saying where it's from, and I think that that's um that that makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself, bigger than my company, and and something that can't help but be good for our entire you know economy and 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 society, as more and more people really require, as more people sort of demand with their voting with their food dollars, that they can understand what they're eating and where it's from. I think everything gets better. You know, shining a light on anything is likely to make it better. And I'm thrilled to have been a a part of this movement, you know, and and hopefully when I look back, I will feel like I made an impact in in accelerating this movement. And I'm, I'm enjoying reaping the rewards of this movement's success.
0: Nice. I love the passion behind you. (laughs) it's natural. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it. I I could
1: probably do a whole podcast on my failures, but I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the one that when it happened, Felt existential. Uh-huh. And it's about the, the, the first company that I ever ran was a startup I founded in my late 20s. And I raised, and it failed, I'll, I'll start with the end. <laughs> I raised a ton of capital from my family members, from really all of my friends, but I also raised, you know, about $13 million, mostly from institutional investors as a kid, you know, 28, 29 years old. Wow. And I, as the founder and the CEO of this company, which was pretty high profile, I was uh, I was on national TV, I was in the newspaper, and I didn't know it, but my sense of my identity and my company's identity had become intertwined. I didn't, I didn't recognize that me and the company weren't the same thing. And when, when that company failed, it forced me to recognize that the company and, and my identity weren't the same thing. You know, the company stopped. I had to wake up the next day and, and keep going. And it turned out that everything turned out really well for me, right? These experiences probably were the stepping stones for later successes. And when I think about that, it helps me keep everything in perspective during challenging times. People don't like to say this, but but failure is, in fact, an option. Even if you don't choose it to make the right choices, sometimes external factors will cause you to fail. And it's important to remember that it's okay to fail. And in my case, in this example, I failed on the biggest stage I could imagine with the most important thing that I'd ever done, losing all of my money and most of my family members' money. And, and it still turned out fine. And that helps me be willing to stick out my neck and take risks. And you know that turtles only get anywhere when they stick out their necks.
0: Yeah. Well, and you went on and did something else as well. You yeah.
1: This, this is actually, I, this is the second company I've run since then. This is my third, but yeah. I'm, and I'm not done hopefully.
0: <laughs> right. Well, congratulations that, you know, I was on a podcast earlier in the week with somebody and, you know, he was acknowledging me for my success on the podcast and it's like, you know what the secret is? Just don't give up. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: I won't answer the question on a personal basis. I might talk about the way my kids are turning out. But on a professional basis, you know, it's clearly that Bright Farms has become, you know, bigger than me. And it was sort of I was telling you earlier. There are there are people working in Bright Farms whose names I don't know who are doing a better job than I would be doing out there in the field, in the farms and in the stores. And it's it's super rewarding and I don't think Bright Farms has barely begun to achieve success. Uh, but Bright Farms has shown that local produce will work in some of the country's most important cities, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Philadelphia, with some of the country's most important retailers, Kroger, Ahold Delhaize, Walmart, and doing it on a commercial scale. And thats a, I think that's something that a lot of people in 2011 didn't believe was likely to happen. Luckily, I didn't listen to them. But uh, right? it is working now, and I'm super proud of it.
0: Nice. And what drives you?
1: You know, drive has never been difficult for me. Uh, you know, I've probably always gotten up early and and, and felt better when I was productive. But for now, it's particularly easy. I don't know if people say that, but I I just love it. I love salads. I love plant-based, pesticide-free local food. I love helping the business that I created scale nationally. I love my colleagues. I love working with them. I love having my kids witness the journey. And you remember that I I essentially created a job. I created a company that I ran that was custom-made to match my talents and interests. So that you know, the drive flows pretty naturally from that. You know, if uh, if I didn't like this job, I'd have a problem since I created it for myself.
0: Right. Nice. Good <laughs> on you. And if you can recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: So I, I do try to keep reading all the time. I think I'm going to choose a book that I think changed the way I think for the better. It's a book called Factfulness. Have you, have you heard of that book or read it?
0: It's called, I'm sorry, what?
1: It's Factfulness. Like the word fact, factfulness. And I'll, I'll just keep going. So, you know, factfulness is this book that that helps you think in a way that you avoid panic or or doom and gloom when you're thinking about the future. And it it starts with a very long historical perspective. You know, almost every major global trend. Is improving and has been improving for the last 150 years, and the rate of improvement is increasing right now. If you zoom out beyond five year period, it's inexorable. You know, everything is getting better in the world. But the way humans have evolved, we've got a bias towards seeing the negative of things around it. And mm-hmm. that's not new to this era, by the way. It's not new to the media still. So it's always been the case. It was useful when you lived in the jungle to mistake a stick for a snake, it's less useful now. This book explains this to you, and it gives you a framework to seeing things in a more positive way that happens to be also a more accurate way to see the world. I first noticed this book when I heard that Bill Gates recommended it. He, he called it the most educational book he'd ever read. He stated that the world would be better if millions read this book, and I completely agree with Bill Gates. This has helped me see the world more effectively. It's helped me be more optimistic and be happy. And I would love to see everyone in the world read
0: it. What, especially with what's going on in the world right now? Yes, with all the you know all the negative stuff going on. So the book is factfulness: ten reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. It's by Hans Rosling.
1: Yes. You know, I don't think about the world with with any sense of of, of doom or pessimism. I recognize that we have a lot of work to do, particularly as we think about changing the food system and especially with respect to climate change. These are urgent matters. But I'm pretty optimistic about the, the ability of humans to overcome those challenges like they have through so many existential challenges throughout history. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm going to work hard at it. I know others will as well. And I'm, I'm frankly filled with optimism for the future.
0: Nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: If my kids are listening, I will continue to say what I always say, which is uh, be kind. Everything gets better with kindness and, and everything gets worse in the absence of it. If, if the listeners are, are uh, you know thinking about career advice and we want to talk about business advice, I always tell young people to get themselves into a a business or an industry in which they have some passion. You know, I I tell my teenage daughter that if she loves ballet, you know, even if you're not going to be a professional, you know, ballet dancer, you can make a career in ballet, right? You can be in sponsorship sales. You can be in events. You can be in administration. And whatever industry you're in, if you've got a passion for it, you'll have a much better time. You'll be much more successful than if you don't. And, you know, just keep working hard wherever you're at and never forget to look up, look around, see what the opportunities are, keep your options open and be willing to take risks to do things differently and better. And if you do all those things in in an area that you've got a lot of passion, you know, you've got a much better chance of of having a rewarding journey. And of course it's the journey that matters, not the destination.
0: There you go. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Paul. My pleasure. How can our listeners find you?
1: Yeah, I would say the best place is to start at brightfarms.com. You know, I'm also involved with the, uh, the controlled environment agriculture food safety coalition and United Fresh Produce Association. But I would say BrightFarms.com is the place to start.
0: Perfect. Thank you. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Bright Farms. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.